Hello and welcome to this brand new podcast, Dances for Buildings. My name is Emily Dust. I'm a DJ, documentary maker and curator. And I've always been really interested in how DJing has led me to meet people and experience things I might never have come across otherwise. Playing a car wash in Durban, an old slaughterhouse in Belgrade and accidentally partying with the son of a dictator. And I know I'm not the only DJ with stories like this. So this is a podcast about that, where I talk to some of the world's most interesting DJs who have shaped music scenes globally. It's a podcast about dancing with strangers in the dark in clubs around the world. Travel, but through the lens of club culture. And it's about perfecting the craft of DJing. I hope this podcast helps you explore cities in new ways. If you're a DJ, I hope you also pick up some tips along the way. My guest on this first episode is Roska, someone with whom I've had many shouted conversations next to a speaker stack. He's an absolute stalwart of the UK funky scene, a genre which started in London in the late noughties, bringing together influences from house, broken beats, Afro house and a bit of grime. We had a really interesting chat, covering everything from the best places for a night out in Japan, China and London, a disastrous first gig in a legendary club and going on tour with Toddler T. We also touch on some of the hot topics in DJing, like the role of MCs, and whether or not DJs should publish their track listings. Welcome to episode one, Roska. Okay, Roska, welcome to the podcast. For those of you listening who don't know Roska, DJ producer, owner of Roska Kicks and Snares, a label that is not only critically acclaimed, but also consistently in the top 10 best-selling basic club labels on Beatport, which is a major music download site. Um, his latest album, Late Nights, Early Flights, was released in 2023, which I feel like could have been an alternative name for this podcast. Yes. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm very good. Um, refreshed back from Asia and uh, yeah, just in the thick of it now and just getting on with some more work and um, yeah, looking forward to 2025, 25. Oh my God. <laughs> 2024. <laughs> good. Me too. <laughs> We're going to talk about all of your recent travels and some like earlier travels as well, because it's kind of partly what the whole podcast is about. And um, one of the things I really like about talking to you about music and club culture is your honesty. Yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like, you know, you, you have to you have to show your truths when it comes to music and like show your experiences. And like, you know, it's one of those things. Everybody's got a different, you know, we can both be in the same room and have different experiences and different views on the same, on the same thing. Right. And, um, yeah, I feel like, you know, it's such an important thing to share your, your and document it as well of your views and your, your enjoyments and, you know, highs and lows of music. You, you are really known for UK funky, but you also like make garage, you make dancehall and, um, you kind of span quite a lot of other genres that don't always get the shine that, um like big room house yeah. maybe gets um so we'll, we'll get into all of that but first like something i didn't know about you until recently you actually started as a garage mc yeah yeah so as you know as you get into your teens you you know you find your own sort of like styles of music that you want to listen to like off the back of you know listening to what your parents would show you from when you was a child and um yeah as i, as I got into my teens my late teens i started like getting into like pirate radio mc and and production as well because like uh, my uncle had a studio in in um in a nunhead sort of like peckham sides and i would always go there literally every saturday and just sit in a corner or like a fly on the wall and just like submerge myself in studio just studio experience and i finally got sort of my own pc and started getting in production myself um but as as sort of like time gets on you know you realize that you know 
the, the material and the, the outboard equipment, it all costs a lot of money. You know, it's not as easy as it sort of is today where you can get software, you can get a laptop and, you know, and you can, you know, you can be on your way. So, you know, a lot of it was you had to go to a professional studio. You had to, you know, you know, pay for time and, and, and get involved that way. And, um, yeah, so as, as I, as I progressed through my, my cousin was my DJ and, um, I was an MC, but in between that, I was DJing as well. Wherever he wasn't on his decks, I would learn and practice. And when, when he stopped, I think he stopped around, around about 2006, I think. Um, I started like, I was making grime. I was making a few different genres and, uh, my hard drives like packed in. So all my grime music that I was making at the time all disappeared. And at the same time, I was listening to like funky house, broken beats and uh, still listening to garage. And then I kind of found like, uh, a, a, like a corner of, uh, producer, uh, DJs that were, that were playing like UK material in between, like playing like European broken beats, the house and everything. And, um, and, uh, progression of that, of making my own music, my own sound and being part of a genre called UK funky, uh, from early doors where it was like, I'd say literally less than 20 people producing it at that point. Um, so that was my sort of massive entry point. It's so funny that um, your journey could have been so different had you not lost that hard drive. You might have ended up being a grind producer and then potentially come to Funky at a different time or whatever. Um, but when, but 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 the fact that you came into Funky at the time that you did, I'm really interested to know at what point did you know you were part of like a scene of new music and new producers and new club nights when i was coming through there was only a few djs that i really knew i knew there was like loads of other djs that were playing specific sounds and there was there was definitely a hunger for some something fresh at that time because i feel like the only genre that was was around was was grime that from the uk and london based and um when i was giving my music to like uh dj pioneer super d um and a few other djs at that point then there was other DJs that were coming through and asking for that. So they was either asking Super D and Super D was asking me if I can give it to this person, Pioneer. And then it was, you know, it became like sort of like a domino effect after that. And, you know, then it was like, you know, um, you know, getting invited to go on rinse and stuff like that beyond like, so it was kind of like a domino effect. So there was a demand for it at that point. And, um, and, uh, I felt like that's when I knew I was, I was contributing to something like really good and something exciting and something that didn't involve me having to, uh, conform to a, a style war that was, or something that was already embedded like grime as well. So I feel like it was a blessing that maybe I didn't jump into grime at that point because it was so solidified. All the key, um, like DJs and producers were already like, you know, nearly 10 years in, whereas, you know, UK funky was so new. There was a demand for it. There was, there was people, you know, people making it. And everybody at that time had their own style. And how did you kind of become aware of, I know this makes it sound like we're talking about <laughs> the dark ages, but it kind of, it was yeah. a really different time. Like you talked about yeah. with the studio, like, you know, you needed to go and like sit somewhere. And like, I feel like in music at that time, you had to kind of earn your place. You had to like earn a seat at the table. And like, obviously there are like advantages and disadvantages of that. And how, how did you kind of like, because there wasn't really SoundCloud at that point, MySpace was around, but I don't think people were really using it for music in like black music circles so much. So how did you kind of start to become aware of like other people's sounds and then be like, oh, there's similar things in our in our production styles that make it a scene? There was definitely more sort of like physical formats at that point. So you'd find that, you know, in like um, sort of like the black scenes, you'd find that mix CDs were were a big thing, you know, like after the club, you know, there was people handing out mix CDs with, an, with a flyer in for another event. 
Um, and that's how, that's how, you know, that's how I came across Pioneer. That's how, and, you know, obviously with Pirate Radio as well. So you, you'd find out where, where DJs are playing via Pirate Radio. They'd advertise their, their where they're playing next, where they're going to be. And then you'd buy the tickets or, and then, you know, you'd go to record shops to buy t- the tickets for the events and get a physical ticket rather than being the digital one or, you know, like a QR code right now. Um, and, um, you know, and then set, send space was massive at that point. And, um, I'll do 15 minute mixes of like my own tunes and, um, I'd put, I'd put it, I'd put it on send space. So that's, I think that's how like a lot of people got to know me, you know, and at early doors, it was like Facebook, uh, Facebook pages was, you know, that wasn't, you know, that was just coming through as I was coming through and Twitter was like fresh. So everybody was using it like mm. way more than they was using like now, even for a more positive sort of light in terms of, you know, people are retweeting, people are liking, people are responding, engaging way more at that point, you know. We first connected on Twitter as well. And like, I remember at the time there were certain DJs in certain circles who wouldn't yeah. follow you back. And then there were other DJs who would follow you and you followed me and I was like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, but there were certain DJs who just wouldn't, they were like, I don't know this yeah, person, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to follow them or whatever. And like, I feel like that's how you kind of build connections with people is being open to new stuff, right? 100%. I feel, I feel like even at that time as well, because I was so new, I wanted to connect with everybody and kind of, um, you know, build mm. something good as well. And what were the key clubs then? Because like London is sort of notorious for being quite a difficult place to thrive as a club. And obviously there are some like stalwarts like Ministry and Fabric that yeah. are still around. But what were the clubs where Funky was like born and what was kind of different about those early nights? The main clubs that I was going to, Herbal, um, Red Carpet and uh, Ministry as well. And uh, and uh, they, they were the main sort of clubs and uh, Fridge fridge Bar in, in Brixton as well. So like, they were sort of like the main sort of like clubs that I was sort of like entering into during my period when I was coming through. For me, it was like more a research thing and understanding if my music could work in this space as well as being for sort of like enjoyment as well. So it was a mixture of both. Do you remember the first time you heard someone else play your tune in a club? Yeah, uh, yeah, it was um, it was Pioneer. I think it was all bar all bar one in Old Street. So like you'll find that a lot of these clubs, a lot of these events, they'll be happening in bars where some some of the clubs wouldn't have you uh, like a lot of DJs on. You know, or they couldn't get the right club. So it was all bar one, but best, best no, it wasn't like all bar one as if you was to go onto a, a random night. It was, it was like you was going to like gas club or going to, going to fridge bar. It was that, it was, it was, it was, it was a vibe. It was a vibe. So Pioneer, and I think obviously Pioneer played because I was, you saw me there anyway, but he would have played it anyway because he was, he was literally playing my tune and everybody was asking for it at that point as well. So, it was good to hear it in the club point. And um, that was my first track that I made in that came out 2008 called Feline. And then I think the second time was I made a track the same year as well called Climate Change. And um, those are the two, those are the sort of key tracks that really like kicked off what Ros- the Roscar sound and like the entry into UK funky and funky house at that point. How did it feel hearing it? You know what? It, it made me just want to go home and make some more music. And I, literally, I would have left the club at that point if it weren't for my cousin. So it's like, <laughs> it, 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 it was definitely like an exciting, like, a moment for me because it made me feel like, right, I, I've got a place I can, you know, so, someone's supporting my music, someone's playing my music. Cause at that point, I wasn't, I wasn't looking to DJ in clubs at that time. I was, I just wanted to produce and make music and continue making music for fun. And then to see Pioneer playing it, it yeah, it just spurred me on to want to come and do some more, make some more as well. So, massive highs 
also when you're just starting out for everybody like I mean not even when you're starting out let's be honest like yeah there are lows all the way along the journey but like are there any memorably awful gigs from that time um I feel like I was I was super rusty at that point DJ in any way I, I went back to back with Scratcher at Plastic People can you just describe it for people who never got to go because it was quite a yeah. special place wasn't it yeah, so it's based on Curtain Road and um, just like sort of like Shoreditch sides, Old Street, kind of that that area. And um, it's like a it's a basement club. You go down the stairs. The stairs are narrow. You you turn right, and then you come to the bar section, and then you turn again, and then literally like there's just the darkest room you can find. And when it's packed, literally you can't see nothing, but you can just feel everything. Like the speakers are in in the walls, and Literally, if anybody plays the most, the most darkest, heaviest bass tune, you'll feel it in your chest. And if honestly, like it's, it's crazy. And like it's about 200 capacity venue and the ceiling's low. You can literally put your hand into the ceiling. You can do it, Emily. You can put your hand on the ceiling. You can touch the ceiling. And that's, it's, it's amazing. Honestly, it's one of the best clubs I've ever played in. And like, even on my travels, like when I was in Asia a few weeks ago, there was, I think there was one person I met. They, they got a club um, in Nagoya called Good Weather. And she, she models her, her sound off, uh, a club off UK sound systems. And yeah, Plastic People was one of the main clubs she mentioned. And every, literally everywhere you go, every, there's always some person that mentions Plastic People. It's just so, one of those iconic clubs. So you're playing this iconic club is your first gig. Yeah. You're back to back with Scratcher, who's a similar like level to you, new in yeah, the sound. Yeah. What happened there? Yeah. Right. So imagine the decks, right? So the the booth is pretty small. So you've got a mixer right in front of you. This is I forgot what mixer it is, but it's not a pioneer mixer. Then you've got two twelve tens here. I'm on CDJs that are back to back sideways here. Both of them are here. So I'm playing, I'm mixing the tunes, the channels are here, the decks are here. I wheeled up the wrong tune. <gasps> <laughs> yes. In the vibe, wheeled up the wrong tune. So, so yeah, that, what that was, that was more like the worst tune. Well, I mean, everybody was kind of receptive to it. They knew I was new, like they kind of got the vibe of it. And, you know, it just continued as, as normal, but forever that literally, that's, that lived with me forever. But really? it, was, it was kind of my fault, but it wasn't because the decks are here and it's like deck one, deck two here. And then you've got the mixer here. So it's like, you're so used to them being left and right and to have them all here in the mixer here oh, it threw me off so also, yeah that was, like, that was good fun I can just I can almost like feel it as well like you're going into this iconic place and you really want to like bring your like it was it would have been such a big deal to play there yeah right? honestly oh, honestly I feel for you <laughs> <laughs> but it was good though the next the next time I played everything was kind of changed they put the decks everything was in 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 front of me so i could i could feel more comfortable but oh that's good iconic iconic place love that place i guess also maybe like at that time you didn't have the confidence to be like you need to move the setup for me <laughs> yeah no the thing is as well is like everybody that came to plastic people was playing on playing on vinyl so of course it was like you know you had to, it was like that it, the setup was right for vinyl it was it was set up right that so at that time, CDJs were just coming in. So I think they were the thousands that were there. Oh so, gosh. you know, you could see the Pioneer 1000. So you can see that it was like how we've progressed on, you know, to linked, everything linked up and, you know, synced in. Speaking of confidence, um, like one thing that Funky was kind of known for, for good and for bad, but everybody at the time had an opinion on MCs like in Funky. Yep. As as someone who came from an MC background, like what was your experience of like working with MCs from the other side of the decks? 
Um, I, f- I felt it was good, you know. I felt like you know this, like this is the thing with like like London and UK culture. Like wherever wherever there's where, wherever there's a specific sound, there's always going to be MCs, whether it's a host or whether it's a full on MC or if it's an MC that's an artist. And like I felt like at that time, I, I felt like you, you needed to embrace it. And I feel like there's there's a pla- there's a time and place for both. And um, you know, like this, you can have a set that's, that doesn't need an MC, and you can have a set that could need an MC just to translate and get the get the point across. And um, I felt like there 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 wasn't much communication between the two that could make it work. So, but I felt like it could have worked, and I felt like you know, there's a lot of like producers that I know that that literally stopped making UK funky and moved on to another genre based on that. And it's like, well, it's like there's a time and place for it. You don't have to agree with it. Like there's so mm-hmm. much things that in music that we agree with and that we don't agree with, you know, and, and it's like you uh, as an artist or DJ or whatever you're doing, you can pick and choose what you want from everything. So, you know, it's the same way you'd select your own music. And I feel like then at that point, there could have been a bit more of that that could have made it work for both parties. Yeah, it's so interesting, the whole thing about MCs, because I think it really depends on like where you sit on what DJing is really about. Because if you're into house and techno, maybe the idea of an MC like all over the tunes is like anathema to you. Whereas if you come from like maybe more of a hip hop and dancehall background, it's like an integral part of the party. And it's like a big part of the culture as well. Um, but it can go horribly wrong. So this MC invited himself onto my set got my name wrong, continually chatted absolute nonsense over the top. And I'd kind of like let him on as a matter of politeness because he was desperate to be part of the, the stage we were playing on. And I was like, well, I don't want to be really rude and, you know, a diva and whatever. So, and I think like that's partly maybe being a woman, you feel like you can't say no in these situations, even though like I was the one on stage playing. He was yeah, rubbish. Yeah. It's, it's your stage. You can say what you like. I right? know that. I know. And it's like, also I've been DJing for long enough. So I wish I felt that confidence. But like yeah, afterwards, yeah. I came off stage and I was just like, you were you were there because you were doing the night, like you're doing the thing with us. And um, I was just so happy to see your friendly face. And I, and you got it immediately. I was like, oh, my God, this just happened. And you were like, whoa. <laughs> and then, <laughs> but you said to me, you were like, you know, if I don't like an MC, I'll just turn the mic off. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I like couldn't even imagine myself doing that because I'd be like, oh, people are going to think I'm so horrible and, you know, whatever. But now I would. I totally would. Um, yeah, honestly, you've got to protect your set, right? So what 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 you find is that that MC, he's looking for opportunities to be able to do what he wants to do. And, and obviously, he's picked the wrong sort of like event to do it. at. You'd want to do it at smaller events, right? Mm. You know, at the same time, he, he's still got to learn. And, and yeah, it's just one of those things like, you know, where he's got to learn from that. And it's one of those things where you just go, well, and also as well, one thing I've learned as well, when you're, when, um, whenever I've got a new MC, I always run some rules by him. It's like, um, read the crowd, look, look, look at me if, if, and just chill and, and, and bring it back. Especially if I don't know their lyrics or understand what their content is. I just say, just host it, keep the crowd hype and engaged and then, and see what happens from there. And, and usually, usually that works as well. And, you know, you know, you get, you know, when you work with like known MCs, like when I work with like Ramsey, you know, I, I know what he's about. So I don't even have to say anything, you know? So you got, you know, you work and you find out what MC knows what, and then they all, they all decide and, you'll find that the most experienced MCs, they, they will, if they don't know your set, but they're hosting your set, they will, they will, they will, they'll take it a few notches back and they will, they will find places and find the familiar tunes to do their thing on. And you know what I mean? They'll find the gaps in between the, in, in between what's going on to, 
to keep it engaged, you know? So Yeah, you know, they won't just it. chat rubbish all over a really nice blend that you're doing. For example. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, to- yeah. <laughs> I'm totally fine with it now. I'm just putting that on the record. I'm over it, but it was so yeah. annoying. <laughs> yeah, Cerisi is an amazing MC. You've worked with him yeah. loads and like I did one thing yeah. with him on radio once and like it was a real learning curve for me of like also how you communicate with uh like from your side as a dj and um yeah. i guess it's what people in bands call like musicianship that kind of you know like when you see a band play together it's so amazing it's like telepathy yeah and yeah. i feel like djing is such a solo thing most of the time and then when you 100%. work with an mc it can be that like slightly more kind of um collective experience i guess yeah, hundred percent. You know, it's 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 um it's it's the art of reading the room, right? And then you know you get to a point where you don't even have to read the person, the people that you're working with. You're just reading the crowd and making sure that whatever music you're playing, they can understand. And then it's for the MC to be able to translate that even more based on what's going on and keep everybody engaged because that's the you know the name of the game to keep everybody engaged and entertained, right? So I feel like you know when you when you work with someone for so long. You know, you, they know what you do. You know what they do, and it's just you just you just go in the same direction and and keep it keep it moving. If someone was coming to London who was listening to this podcast, who hadn't been to London before, for a good night out, listening to the music that we like, where would you say? Um, if I'd, I'd say there's a few clubs. I'd say um, uh, Phonox in Brixton, um, XOYO, definitely like two good, really good clubs. Um, I played um, Phonox. Uh, I think last year with Young Sing, he had a residency going on. That was really good. Um, I played in a Fox and Firkin twice last year, I think. Um, oh no, once this year and once last year, I played um, with. Um, I played. I played uh, for Errol, um, touching bass last year, and that was during summer. I was playing a lot of like all the old school stuff and really like funky house stuff. Really like because it it's in band. fox and firkin is in lewisham isn't it it's like right, yeah, and it's also yeah. it's interesting actually because i went there for the first time the other day to see uh captain accident supporting julian marley and i was like yeah. when i walked in i was like this is just a pub like but they because yeah, i've yeah. heard like i've seen the lineups that they book and they're really yeah. like they really like really good. not to sound patronizing but like they punch above what you would expect a venue that looks like that to yeah. be booking do you know what i mean and they, get, they, get, they get the crowds in, it's man. amazing they get, they get them in, man yeah honestly it's so good to have something like that down in south london totally it's yeah because really it's also it feels like it feels like a bit local do you know what i mean you walk in you don't expect to have like a cutting edge club experience but yet the music that's being booked is that yeah 100 100 i feel like you know as long as like the club's accessible you can get to it easy and the lineup's good, you know, it will, it will definitely, it'll definitely get the numbers in. Yeah. Um, we'll also, whatever club as well, um, Corsica Studio is one of my mm. favourite, Room 2. Room 2 is my, my vibe, I like Room 2. Wicked. We've reached a section of the podcast which I'm currently calling Crossfader because it is basically like the big controversial issues in DJing, oversimplified into a like yes or no, but trying to find some sort of middle ground on the fader. Uh, so I'm yeah. going to ask you a series of questions very quickly and I want your yeah. first, your honest response, which I know you'll give me. Right, let's go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> sink or no sink? No sync. Okay. Sync, by the way, is like, uh, yeah, can you explain sync, actually? 
Like, yeah, it's, um, as, as long as as long as the tracks are quantized, um, which are put in time basically on your computer. Um, once you download them onto your USB or hard drive, and basically if the if the if the CDJs that you're playing on are linked by Ethernet cable, you press one button, sync, and it should sync the tunes in together, so they will keep a really tight mix, which not a bad thing, especially if you're playing a good you know night, but you know not for me. Pioneer or Alan and Heath. Oh God, man! <laughs> yeah, no, pioneer. All day. <laughs> day job or DJ full time? DJ full time. Okay. Um, should producers DJ and should DJs produce? No. <laughs> but you do both. I do both, but I feel like if you're a DJ and you feel that you need to get into producing to get more bookings, then no. But if you produce and you DJ, swings both ways, I guess. But if you naturally, if you naturally do it both, do it. So should- yes and no. Maybe. Can I do You're maybe right in one? the middle of the crossfader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Should DJs publish their track listings? That's tough because... No, actually... No. I feel like you should register it with PRS though. Okay. But I feel like you don't have to share it with everybody. Interesting. Because... All right, I, I came from a period where you'd make... If, if you had, like, specific tracks that you didn't want to share, you didn't want to share them. But... I understand in this like, day and age, everybody wants to be known. Everybody wants to be known for that track. And, you know, we're in a big ego fest of a period. So I understand both sides. What is your panic tune if you've accidentally cleared the dance floor? Oh, I haven't done that in a while. But if, if I do, um, DJ Gregory, don't panic. Perfect. <laughs> uh, Favourite effects? Oh, I've got a few. I like, I like using the Crush. Um, and I like using um, echo delay as well Love and filter at the same time oh so, nice yeah. and then which is better home gig or away away cool which brings us nicely into part two so <laughs> do you remember the first time that you ever played abroad Yes, I played in a place called uh, Split in Croatia. It was my first, my first um, ever um, show abroad, and uh, yeah, it was interesting. It was really good because I, I never knew what to expect. I like, you know, um, and even some of my peers they haven't really been abroad. That it wasn't their event, you know, in like you know, like the sort of usual places like um, you know in um, Greece or wherever. It was, it was. This was something completely new. I was kind of like in that space of like following a blueprint of what the dubstep DJs and drum and bass DJs were doing, not what my scene was doing, you know? So, um, yeah, it was good. It was, it was, it felt weird, like, like jumping on a plane on my own, going somewhere completely, you know, and relying and, and putting your trust in someone that you've never met before, like o- abroad to take you to a club take you to your hotel and everything and it, it, was, it was a really good experience man honestly it was like it made me again it was one of those periods that just made me want to do more because it, it, it I, I felt like rewarded for the hard work that I put in behind and all the research that I've done because like you know just to go back a little bit you know when I was first coming through I sent demos everywhere and no one was picking up on them because no one was making UK funky. No one was releasing UK funky. You touched on it in part one and you said about like when you go abroad now, there's sort of this feeling of like more authenticity when you're touring abroad compared to the UK. What do you mean by that? Um, I've been going, I've been going to Tokyo since and Osaka since um, 2000 and 2010. And um, the, 
the way the way that the way that music is consumed over there is not based on trends. It's not based on like everything is based on trends to a certain point, but it's not based on trends to the point where nothing else matters. And um, it's it's just the way they you know like I played I played in Nagoya for the first time, and there was actually people that sometimes I, I I never take for granted that I always expect people not to know my music more than to know my music based on. I always want to win people over and I want to play the best set that I can to, to get my point across. So one day they'll see me and, or they will remember my set, you know, years down the line. And, um, I feel like I've done that many times, especially on this tour as well. So in, in Nagoya, I met like six, seven people that heard my music, played, they play specific sounds and, and it was a surreal moment for them to see me play, you know, and, I felt like, I felt like that was, that was a good moment for me because they, un, they didn't, un, they didn't, they didn't expect nothing from me, but they expected to hear my music. And that was all. And I feel like sometimes you can play specific places and it can, you know, they want to hear what they want to hear. They know what they want to hear before they've even left their house. So if they don't hear that, it's a bad night. Mm -hmm. you no. Know? So it's like, I feel like the expectation is higher other places without doing research. Whereas I feel like. Sometimes you can go places outside London, outside the UK, where there's no expectation. They just want to hear good music, you know, mm -hmm. so it's a bit more open minded. Playing outside of Europe, let's say, for the first time and outside of North America for the first time. Were there like differences? Because even like I've played in Europe and I remember like being really surprised when you see like immediately, like in London, people come in and they stand at the side for ages. In like Germany, they come onto the dance floor like right at the front and they just start dancing, even if there's like nobody else on the dance floor, which I was like, yeah. wow, this is <laughs> this is amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what, what were your experiences playing in Asia for the first time and like or, or sort of subsequent trips where you've been like really surprised about like how how like club culture is different, like how we interact with DJs differently. Yeah, I played India in uh, 2018, I think it was. And I had no expectation of that. I was like, I'm just going to go there and enjoy it. Whatever happens, I know what I'm going to play. And I know what I can play if it doesn't work out. And um, that was really good. It was, it was, it, it, it blew my mind that people, like there was, there was a few people that didn't know who, they didn't know, they knew, they knew I was playing. They didn't know who I was. And, but before the night, they checked out all my music before they came out. So they done a bit of research before they come out to decide whether they wanted to come and see. I was confused in the way that like, it's like, no one does that. No, like everybody goes, I don't know that person. I'm not going, but they literally went out their way. And I remember there was one, there was one guy, he come and, um, yeah, he, he, he was working a night shift and he come on his lunch break to come and see and then went back. So wow. he, literally, I played like the last, sh like the last set of the night, and he said, "Yeah, I'm on my lunch break. I just wanted to come and see you." And then he literally left as soon as, like, as soon as he met me after, and that, that was crazy. That was just like insane for me. So, what about any like mad venues you've played? I played in a place called Dali in China um, on that tour as well, and we played on a rooftop out there. And um, it, the sunset, the sun was setting, but you could see there's like mountains all around as well. So even when we was landing in Bali, there's like, we're landing at like the highest point. So you land literally like on like around mountains and then literally like the view around it was amazing. But like, yeah, to play on a rooftop and there's mountains and like, as you look up, that was amazing. That's that was wicked. Really China is something, you know, it's, it's a very like culturally still like quite a, 
different place for a lot of Westerners. Were the people that were involved in club culture there kind of like, where do they fit into sort of bigger Chinese society? Because it's like here, dance music's so established, but there, you know, it's do people seek it out? Like how how did how did the scenes that you kind of jumped into when you were guesting like how did they form i'm so used to going to um to shanghai and beijing in in china um and you'll find that there's a lot of there's a lot of international people there either for studying to live or just for just for holidays so i found that some of the clubs that i go to you find that it's a mixture of both like you know you I'll, you know a lot of the places i'm playing you'll get you know you get people from the uk i met someone that saw me in 2010 in newcastle out there and it's like and then they're, they're like, yeah, I'm just coming from my hit of UK music. And when you get deeper into like, um, into China, um, you find that it can become a little bit difficult, but you know, again, with reading the room and understanding what works and what doesn't, then you, you just, you just move your, your set into whatever makes sense for the, for the room. What kind of stuff are you bringing in that you wouldn't bring in in London, say? Cause like, I assume you're not playing like massive Chinese hits at that point. No, no, no. <laughs> like, no, I'm teasing you, but like, you know, yeah, some yeah. places you go, yeah. you'd be like, oh, like, say you played in Ghana, you might just play like a massive Afrobeats tune. But like, yeah, I, yeah. The, the kind of, I guess the, the kind of um, crossover with the mainstream or whatever isn't quite the same in, in China. Of course, of course. So like, the idea is, you know, um, you know, you know, I play a lot, I play a lot, you know, within, within my set, I play, you know, UK funky predominantly, and I play tribal house. And, and things that fit in between that, whether it's, uh, whether it's garage or anything that has a vibe that Roscoe would play or what Roscoe would make. And, you know, with, with a lot of, with, with some of the, ch- um, the sets I'd play, I might play a bit more tribal house than UK funky, or I might play more UK funky and tribal house or, and garage in between that. So it's, it's whatever works within those means and how, and how I'm going to formulate the set. You know, um, I'll start my set how I usually start my set. And then I'll pick up on what works and what doesn't and what people understand more of. And then, you know, you, you know, as you, as you're playing, you'll get to a point in your set. If, if you, you know, if you catch the crowd right, you'll get to a point where the crowd, you can play anything. That's a DJ's dream to play anything you want to play. And you, you know, that's, and that's, that comes with reading the room and building the vibe. So it's, it's, you know, sometimes it could take. The whole set, but sometimes it could take two or three tracks in and people get it and people just want to vibe, you know, but it's, it's reading, reading between the lines and understanding what works, what makes that crowd tick, you know, what makes the majority of them go, this is, this is why I'm here. Mm. Favorite clubs to play in Asia right now? The best one I played on on my tour was um, in Nagoya called Good Weather. One of my favorites in Tokyo is Circus. And there was one I played called Knox in uh, Chengdu in China. There's another place called um, Oil Club in, um, I think that's in, Sh- not Shanghai, but it might be in Beijing. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's a, there's a few clubs that, that really get it. And they have, they, what you'll find is they, they're a bit like mini fabrics in, in the sense of all, where they have internationals come and they have locals come. So it's a mixture of both. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's a few of those clubs around that really, that really understand and get it. And, and uh, makes sense as well to play in. There are some amazing photos circulating from about 2010 of you and Toddler T on tour in America. Um, and like, obviously both of you are like iconic DJs and producers, but at the time, like I think it must've been super exciting to go and tour somewhere together. 
And I wondered, like, do you, was there a difference for you in touring with another DJ and like doing all the things with another DJ rather than just doing solo? I mean, also, so that, I've heard some <laughs> stories from that tour. So tell us the sanitized bits if you can. Yeah. So the, so, so the, 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 the funny thing about that tour was, um, we was at a point where, where dubstep was, was, um, was getting big in America. So it was like, you know, one, one thing with America, what happens is like, I, I, I understand with music is that, um, you know, un, the underground to like mainstream is, is, is a massive like step where, you know, things, things have to change in, in terms of to open up to make it more palatable for mainstream. So it gets a bit more big room. It gets a bit more. Um, so with, so with dubstep over there, it became really like sort of like EDM based, um, in some aspects. And, um, when we was touring, a lot of our warm up DJs were, were opening up with, with EDM, like that base, that, that type of dubstep. So it was kind of like every, every show we had to restart the room, like restart the vibe, start from where we wanted to start off. So me and Toddler, we would, we would take turns in opening up. So I would either play first, Toddler would open up and play first. Whoever was feeling it, we would do it. And, um, so we'd always leave like a two to five minute gap between that last tune that they played and what we're going to play. And then we would play. We played in this club called, I think it was called Q Club in, um, in LA. And, uh, we're there, we're chilling. And, um, yeah, it was a big DJ's, um, club. Toddler played first on that night. And then I played second. And then as I'm playing, my table was getting lifted up by these security guards and moved into the corner of the stage. Toddler's in the corner just laughing. He's on the floor now laughing at me because I'm getting upset with the security guards moving my table. Then this nav- this big table gets moved into the middle where I was standing, and then this uh this EDM DJ jumps on, and the first tune he plays was this EDM dubstep version of Tetris. Oh my god! So, so I was I, I I was losing it at this moment in time. Toddler's there laughing, and again it was just one of those moments where I don't know how I would have reacted if Toddler wasn't there laughing. I needed Toddler to be laughing because that would, it just dampened the mood. It just, it made it more funny and just more palatable. But honestly, that was a stressful talk. Yeah. But it was very good. It was good to be with Toddler. And it was, I'm told Toddler would say the same thing as well because we just literally had so much fun. We were just laughing the whole way everywhere. That is like a thing. Um, like I wanted to touch on because like it is quite a solo thing, DJing, and it is quite yeah. lonely. Um, when you don't have someone like Todd the T like there laughing with you, making things that could be really dark into really funny moments, how do you kind of like protect your own mental health? Like with the long, like with the late nights and early flights, like how do you, what's your yeah. like travel routine to keep yourself sane? Do you know what? I'm actually, I'm actually a loner at heart. I actually enjoy my own company. Honestly, I do. And, um, but, but I, I realized that like I need to communicate with people in the outside world. So, I like, I like going, I like touring my own. It forces me to talk to other people. It puts me in a position where I have to communicate with people. And I like doing that because I meet new people and I talk to people. And you know, some, when you're, when you're on a tour with someone else, you're in your own bubble. So then you're talking to the person you're familiar with. When you're on your own, you're, you have to engage with everybody else and you get to understand a bit more about the country that you're going to. And um, you get to do different things. And I find it more fun that way as well. And like traveling on my own, it's just like, peace and quiet <laughs> it's just like there's nothing going on it's chill wicked like do you drink on tour do you do you not drink do you like get up early and do like yoga in the hotel like anything practical yeah so um during my during my tour because um i i, I started karate a year and a half ago and um 
So I do, I, I do my, I, I practice my moves in my, in my hotel room. If I've got time, I'll, I'll do my exercises. Like we do like specific warm up exercises that we have to do They're quite intense. So it's quite cool to keep, keep fit as well, especially if the hotel doesn't have a gym. So mm. I just do it in my room. Um, so I'll do all my exercises. Um, and, uh, I barely drink now. I usually, I usually, I used to drink all the time and, um, yeah, it just became so unhealthy as well. Like it just, I felt like I was just like putting on excessive weight and just felt like I was eating like, like terrible food, like when I got back and stuff like that. So like I, on my rider, I've only got like two shots of my choice. So I have two shots of my own, like what I want and that's it. But then if it's like a, if it's a really good party and I've got a day off the next day, I might have a few more, but I, I kept it, I keep it to a minimal because it's like, I'd rather keep, keep fit and, you know, just stay, stay because otherwise when I do karate, you feel it, you yeah. feel it the next day. Honestly, it's, it's intense. Well, final question, like how has travelling and being able to play abroad like changed your perception of how you play and also I guess like where you sit within the UK scene? Um, I'll be honest, I've stopped caring about the UK scene um, in that sense because uh, like uh, uh, one person told me one thing and it changed, it, changed, it changed my life like for musically and the way that I direct things. And um, there was a guy called Martin and um, he runs a label called 3024. I remember like, I always used to focus on being part of UK Funky, UK Funky, the scene and trying to make sure that I was won over by people playing and, and making it. And, um, he said, he was, he said to me, he kept saying to me, you know, the world, the world's bigger than UK Funky. You know, you know, you don't have to conform to just being part of that one thing. And there was a period where I started adding more dancehall to my music and started embracing my own culture a bit more. Um, and my own Jamaican heritage a little bit more. And then started when I was going to specific cities like, like, like Japan and China, like tapping into their music and understanding what they do and, and not looking for way, looking for ways that I can engage with without having to just be a DJ and get paid to DJ. What other ways can I be a part of the scene and, and, and engage with the, the people that come to see me? And that's how, you know, working with uh, Nakamura. You know me and like the guys at the Trekkie Tracks label in, in Japan. That that's how that all come come together. You know, I was able to, you know, work out a way to you know build something and and have fun with it as well. And and they've all been playing my music out there. And you know, to come over there and sh- showcase it in that in that way was you know it was really good fun, good good moment. Wicked, like a kind of being part of a global community as well. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. Because you know, you know, we can all be part of like a city or a scene or you know, a country, but to be part of something everywhere and, and, and enjoy it and be able to embrace, embrace it and also engage with those, you know, musicians or people that just enjoy your music abroad is, is, is really good fun. It's, I find it re- really rewarding. Wicked. I feel like that's a good place to stop. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. I always appreciate Roscoe's honesty and I find his confidence in who he is and what he plays really inspiring. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please tell someone else who might like it. Give us a follow, subscribe, review it or share it. You can also follow us on socials at Dances for Buildings. This episode was produced by Erica McCoy and the music is by Julia Tess. It was presented by me, Emily Dust. Next episode, we'll be focusing on a Brazilian artist who has paved the way for underground Latin music across the world and is a huge ambassador for LGBTQIA rights in her hometown of Sao Paulo. I'm talking about Bad Sister. See you then. <laughs>